Hi, everybody. It's Derek. Uh, I want to thank Chris and Matt for letting me record this little addendum to our interview. Uh, this episode came out on April 19th, and we had actually recorded it well before that. But on April 25th, uh, the Kanuni Suleiman, professor of Ottoman and modern Turkish history at the University of Chicago, Cornell Fleischer, passed away somewhat unexpectedly. Uh, professor Fleischer was one of my mentors in grad school. Uh, he was a giant in the field, uh, a superlative scholar, a, a wonderful teacher. Um, but as his student, as one of his students, I think the thing that that always stood out the most to me, um, right alongside his his intellect and his expertise uh, in the field, was how just how unfailingly kind and generous uh, and good natured he was to to me and to really all of his students. Uh, I was so sad to hear of his passing and. Uh, uh, it is an, an, an unfathomable loss to the field, to that university, and to anyone whose uh, lives he touched. So I just wanted to dedicate this interview to Professor Fleischer and his memory. Uh, may he rest in peace. Um, thanks again for indulging me. Welcome to Hell on Earth, Appendix 6, The East. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Matt Crispin. So, throughout this series, and especially as we've discussed Germany and the Austrian Habsburgs, a specter has always loomed in the background. A third pole of power serving as the constant general threat to European Christendom and the specific threat bearing down on the Austrian Habsburgs. And that is, of course... The Ottoman Empire. Uh, now, Matt and I have enjoyed making our Turk lusts for Vienna jokes throughout the series uh, because it is such a funny phrase. And also, they did be lusting for Vienna. There was so much lust. There was <laughs> lust in their hearts, just like J uh, Jimmy Carter. But there's obviously so much more going on with the Ottomans during this period. They deserve a full examination on their own to really understand what's going on in the with the world in general during this time period. So today, to help us with that, we are joined by Chapo Traphouse, senior foreign correspondent from Foreign Exchanges and the American Prestige Podcast. It is, of course, Derek Davison. Derek, welcome to Hell on Earth. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm honored. This has been such a tremendous uh, production that you've you've done. I really am uh, in awe of it. So thanks for letting me be a part of it. Oh, thank you, Derek. And, yeah, and this you. was, of course, uh, like. I, just to be clear with our audience, uh, doing this this topic was it was Derek's suggestion, which was a very good one because we didn't have anybody specifically lined up for this. But you know, we're we're happy that we made you uh, to reignite your passion for this time period enough <laughs> to be like, I got to dive back in. I I got to go just, back for nobody's more. Nobody's interviewed me about anything for a couple of months now. I was like, you know, where where's everybody? You know, where's everybody at? So. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I did suggest that I will, I will say I pitched it. No, to it was a great idea and I'm very glad that we're doing this, but let's <laughs> get started. So in our main series, I believe we first meet the Ottomans with Suleiman the Magnificent allying with the French against Charles V Habsburg in the Italian wars in the 16th century. Obviously a lot had to go on in the empire to make Suleiman so damn magnificent. 
So Derek, do you want to maybe give us a brief history of the Ottoman Empire leading up to where we meet them in the mid-1500s? Yeah, this will be uh, fun because it's about 220 years of history. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've <laughs> done more in a, in yeah, a few we, paragraphs. Uh, that's what yeah, we're all yeah, about. Wrapping stuff up into uh, a absolutely. digestible parcel. <laughs> so uh, the Ottomans emerge uh, around the turn of the 14th century uh, in northwestern Anatolia, uh, just opposite Constantinople and, and really the heart of what's left of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, they emerge, their first uh, attested leader is Osman I. Uh, Osman is where we get the name Ottoman. Uh, he, according to uh, the traditional uh, historiography, uh, he makes his grand entrance on the world stage on July 27th, 1299, with a raid on the city of Nicomedia, which is uh, today Izmit. Uh, that's that comes from Edward Gibbon and is sort of the traditionally accepted. Uh, if you want to put a date on the emergence of the Ottoman Empire, this is it. Um, nobody really goes by that as a a rubric. Uh, but twelve ninety nine seems like a, a reasonable range. The first really attested uh, Ottoman engagement, military engagement, is uh, happens in thirteen o two. So you figure he must have been you know kicking around for a couple of years before that. Twelve ninety nine seems fine. Uh, the Ottomans emerge in a, a world where really in an Islamic world where the kind of traditional focuses or centers of legitimacy and power have been shattered. Uh, the Abbasid Caliphate is gone. Uh, it, it you know started to lose power really in the 10th century, but uh, still retained a symbolic significance. Uh, but it's destroyed in 1258 by the Mongols when they sacked Baghdad. Uh, the, uh, there is a branch of the Abbasids. We may talk about this later. There's a branch of the Abbasids that winds up in Cairo. It's called the shadow caliphate. Uh, awesome. It's, it's very, it's a puppet of the, the Mamluk Sultanate, uh, which, that, uh, Egypt which also sounds like it could be the title of a Jack Ryan novel. <laughs> shadow caliphate. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes. good. That would be good. Um, specifically in Anatolia, what has happened is, uh, the Seljuk Turks, uh, who ranged kind of roamed into, uh, what we would think of as Iran, Iraq, the Middle East, more or less today, uh, in the 11th century have broken up. The, there was a, a great Seljuk empire uh, that ruled a lot of this region, but they've broken up by this point. Uh, there is a sultanate of Rome, uh, Rome, Rome, Anatolia, uh, that is in charge of basically this portion of what was left of the, the Seljuk empire. That's subjugated by the Mongols in the 1240s. So they're still around, but they're vassals. They're really not that powerful. Western Anatolia is very much a peripheral region. Uh, and so there are stories that come uh, emerge in later Ottoman uh, sources in, in their histories that Osman did some service for the Seljuks or he was of use to them and they gave him a fiefdom basically in this uh, region. It, it's it's not clear. We know very little really about Osman. Uh, he may well have just kind of gathered a band of raiders and, and freebooters around him and found a good spot. And it really was a good spot. Geography is a big part of, of their emergence. Uh, and then just started carrying out raids. Um, the The traditional view of this, which again comes out of later Ottoman writing, is that he's doing holy war. He's doing what's called Gaza or Ghazi, uh, which is religious war against the Byzantines, and he attracts Muslim warriors from all over the Islamic world, and it's because he's so close to Constantinople, kind of right in the meat of where you would be doing this. 
that that view has changed a lot uh, from you know uh, really since the 1980s it's been uh, fairly discredited uh, and more so kind of uh, in more recent times by Ottomanists. Uh, the the sense that they they have now, if you actually look at at the polity that developed around Osman in these early days, it's not particularly doesn't seem particularly religious, doesn't seem particularly orthodox Muslim. There's a lot of kind of, you know, heterodox folks hanging around. There's Christians that seem to be part of Osman's war party. And Gaza, if you strip it down to its bare roots, just means raiding. Like it means going on kind of banditry raids. And it doesn't get this religious significance until later on. So uh, that's the origin. Uh, We have much better attestation for the sultans who come later, Orhan, uh, Osman's son, uh, succeeds him. Uh, he conquers a number of cities in the Anatolian side of the the, the Straits, Nicaea, Nicomedia, Bursa. Uh, Bursa becomes the, the capital for a while. Uh, he gets involved in Byzantine civil wars. This is one of the ways that we have pretty good attestation for what the Ottomans are doing in this at this point. They're, they get uh, they get drawn in basically to uh, Byzantine civil wars and make out with you know they're given territory or given you know certain uh, goodies for for doing that. Um, he's eventually able to take control of Gallipoli in the 1350s. Uh, it's not clear that there was much of a fight here. Gallipoli suffered a, a major earthquake. Uh, Europe was still coming out of the Black Death, so the population was already low to begin with. It seems like they may have just kind of wandered into Gallipoli and taken it over <laughs> without much of a fight. But that's that's important because it's the Ottomans' first foothold in Europe. Uh, then Murad I succeeds Orhan. He conquers Adrianople, which immediately becomes uh, – that's the city of Edirne today uh, – immediately becomes the new capital on the European side uh, of the Straits. And this is – from here, it's where the Ottomans expanded to the Balkans. They fight uh, the Battle of Maritza in 1371, which secures control over much of modern-day Serbia. Uh, they fight the Battle of Kosovo in 1389, where uh, Murad is killed, but the Ottomans also happen to uh, to win the battle and secure their control over this region. Uh, then they suffer a complete collapse. <laughs> so Murad is succeeded uh, on the battlefield at Kosovo by his son, Bayezid I, who's known as Yildirim Bayezid, Bayezid the Thunderbolt. Uh, cool. He, he goes as far as to have his own brother, Yakub murdered on the same battlefield at Kosovo uh, to prevent any kind of dynastic uh, strife. And Bayezid makes the mistake of turning his attention to Anatolia instead of uh, continuing on to press in, press on in Europe, he decides to go after what has emerged as the Seljuks are breaking up as these small Turkish principalities, you know, like the Ottomans, but in you know in other parts of Ankara or in other parts of Anatolia. He turns his attention toward conquering these places. Uh, he winds up uh, antagonizing some vassals of Timur or Tamerlane, the the one of the great Central Asian conquerors, the one. Uh, him who followed Geng- uh, Genghis Khan and kind of tried to rebuild his empire. Uh, you you're doing they, some Monday morning quarterbacking on that? Yeah, bad idea there. Don't do yeah, that. very bad idea. Uh, they fight at Ankara in 1402, and the Ottomans are just completely rinsed. Uh, they are totally uh, wiped out. The empire, T- Timur breaks up the empire. He doesn't do away with the Ottoman line, though. He's very careful to leave them in control of their kind of ancestral core. Uh, and their European territories. He doesn't really care about that, but he breaks up the rest of the empire in Anatolia and gives it back to the 
uh, the Turkish princes. What follows is an 11-year uh, essentially extended civil war as the various princes of the dynasty fight with one another. Uh, that ends in 1413 with the emergence of Mehmed I, not the, the famous Mehmed, but Mehmed I, uh, who uh, manages to defeat his brothers, and I think there's a, there may be an uncle thrown in there as well. Hell yes. Um, and that that sort of begins then, uh, they begin the process of rebuilding, and it takes you into the golden age, quote unquote, which is uh, Suleiman, and I would I would say also uh, his father Salim. But uh, that's that's the basic kind of first phase of the empire. So then we get what is now historically known as the Ottoman golden era, the golden age, when they are the undisputed masters of the Eastern Mediterranean and a genuine threat to the Christian powers of Europe. So uh, what is going on during this period? Uh, how much power do they really assert? Are they really like the continental superpower during that period? I mean, it, it takes some time, but I would say by the time of Salim and Suleiman, they are unquestionably uh, the dominant military power on, on the continent. Mehmed takes, takes a while to rebuild what had been lost after the Battle of Ankara. Uh, he's followed by Murad II, who really begins this long period of European conquests and kind of bullying basically the, uh, the European states of the, the, the Caucasus or the, the Bal uh, Balkans. And, and uh, you know, this is where you start to see uh, encounters with uh, the Habsburgs. You'll see that, you know, a little bit down the road. Uh, Murad is interesting because he uh, defeats Venice. He fight, fights a war against Venice. He wins that in the 430s. And then he decides uh, in four, 1444 that he wants to abdicate. This is very much like the Pope decides he wants to retire, basically. Um, nobody's really sure why it's possible he wanted to avoid uh, having any controversy about the succession. He wanted to kind of pave the way for his son, Mehmed, the, the famous Mehmed the Conqueror. Um, but he retires and then is called back into service because the Europeans form one of their many holy leagues. Uh, and they come after the Ottomans and there's a panic that, you know, Mehmed's too young. He's too unseasoned. He doesn't know what he's doing. So he's called back. Murad is called back to lead the army. Um, and he wins uh, victories at, at Varna, and then he wins the, another battle of Kosovo in 1448, uh, and is forced essentially to become emperor again for until he dies in in 1451. Uh, Murad is where you you see, by the way, the the emphasis on Gaza, uh, like the early Ottomans as holy warriors, really come start to come to the fore. Uh, he also emphasizes their descent from Oghuz. There's this whole mythic. Turkish origin going back to Central Asia of the Oghuz Turks, uh, and he really stresses that. I think this is important because one of the things that you see the Ottomans doing over time is kind of changing their the story of who they are and why they deserve to be ruling all this territory. And, and their first stabs at it are the holy warrior idea and this uh, descent from Oghuz, and, and it's kind of impor important uh, position that their their line uh, has. So is there kind of a, a retroactive, you know, trying to put the Ottomans into a like a, a Islamic lineage to to justify their uh, their control of the era area? The Islamic lineage doesn't come until later uh, when they when they conquer Cairo and they also wind up uh, controlling Mecca and Medina as a result of that. 
Um, but there is definitely a, a, an attempt to put them in this category of people who are like fighting the good fight against the infidel. And, and uh, you know, that's that's part of their story. I mean, it is the same thing that we see with like, you know, I think in the second episode, we were talk about how the Habsburgs had documents forged to show them as descendants from Caesar and stuff like that. There, there's a very an acute interest. Oh, we got, in this, yeah, we got that, too. Actually, <laughs> yeah, the, you, there's an acute interest in this era to show by any means necessary kind of unbroken lineages with some kind of a, a person in the past who had some imagined authority to then justify your own. So they don't, they don't necessarily do lineages, but they do kind of take on titles. So, I, I mean, mm. we can get into the, the next phase here, which is of course, Mehmed the conqueror. Uh, when he takes Constantinople finally in 1453 and ends the Byzantine empire or the Roman empire, he takes the title Caesare Rome, Caesar of Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's definitely a, a, an attempt to take, seize that, that kind of, uh, royal aspect, uh, and make it part of the Ottoman, the Ottoman story. Um, he, Mehmet goes on to, to conquer the Moria, which or the Peloponnese, uh, in Greece in 1460 and Trebizond in 1461, which really does away with the last remnants of the Byzantines or the Romans. We could, you know, have a moment of silence, I guess, for the, yes. the Roman empire here. Uh, he fights, uh, another war. There's a lot of wars between the Ottomans and Venetians and, and we can talk about naval stuff. I think that's more of a thematic thing, but, uh, there is a lot of tension here because the Ottomans are the first, uh, and it really starts under Mehmed and then under uh, his son Bayezid II. Uh, they're the first Islamic polity in in to really make naval power a priority, and, and so they start to challenge uh, the Europeans and the Venetians in particular for control of the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, so they bump they bump up against the Venetians quite a bit. Mehmed also establishes he defeats the uh, uh, this fun group called the Akuyunlu. I won't go into <laughs> details, but they're a fun the white sheep Turkmen uh, who are ruling in Iran. Uh, there's a, a moment where the Venetians kind of approach them about you know can we if we give you guns will you attack the Ottomans and they're like yeah we we want to attack the Ottomans anyway uh, and then of course the Venetians welch on the guns and the Akuyunlu are just wiped out. Um, they're, they're not wiped out totally, but any, you know, design that they have on challenging the Ottomans is, is put to an end. Um, he also establishes control over Crimea, which, you know, you may have heard has been in the news lately. Um, and there's an, uh, there's a Mongol dynasty, there's a Chinggis Khan descended dynasty that's, that rules Crimea and they're allowed to remain in place. They become sort of the second Royal family of the empire. Um, his other big attempt is he invades Italy, invades southern Italy, and, and takes the city of Otranto in 1481. This is part of a prophetic thing. There's a sort of eschatological uh, belief that once Islam conquers Rome, that's going to usher in the you know the good times at the end of end of days. And of course, Constantinople was the Rome of of the day. So they conquered Constantinople, and then nothing happened. And so Mehmed and the you know kind of Ottoman officials th- came up with the big idea that and well you have to conquer to to both Rome oh, it okay, has to be rooms. the old Rome and the new Rome so they tried to invade Italy but Mehmed died and that that put the the kibosh on that uh, invasion Th- then we get into Bayezid II whose reign is mostly about consolidation uh, Bayezid had a problem in that uh, where. A lot of this, you know, di- these dynastic changeovers, I've kind of glossed over, but we can get into more detail uh, later. A lot of these dynastic changeovers have involved fratricides or civil wars, basically, because mm-hmm. because the princes would be given 
provinces to run as a, ch- a place to kind of test themselves. They, they'd serve, you know, perform military service. Um, and then when it came time to decide who was going to be the, the next sultan, you duked it out, essentially. And, and the last man standing would would be uh, the sultan. None of that uh, Frankish ba- primogeniture nonsense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The they they do actually later, but but right now it's it's like survival of the fittest, basically. Uh, but Bayezid's brother Jem Sultan winds up uh, fleeing and and comes under the control, basically, or the protection uh, of uh, the papacy at one point, and and I think France at one point. He's kind of traded around. Uh, Europe, but he's held out here as this threat against the Ottomans. Like we're going to put this guy at the head of an army and send him, you know, into the empire to uh, to undermine you. And so Bayes is a little bit gun shy about uh, any major conflicts with the Europeans. What he does do is invest heavily in the navy, uh, which pays off uh, in a major way in in the the 16th century. Uh, and he also welcomes the uh, Muslims and Jews who are expelled from from Spain by the fine. Uh, Spanish monarchs uh, when that happens. Uh, Bayezid faces rebellions. Uh, this is the, another reason why he's not really, doesn't have the capacity to do much with the Europeans, but he faces rebellions uh, in Eastern Anatolia that are inspired by the rise of the Safavids, this heterodox Sufi-based order uh, in Iran that comes to to rule Iran in, in 1501. As we get up to this point, we're almost back to where I said, where we where we met the Ottomans. Um, you know, I maybe you could take a second to just talk about how the rise of this kind of antagonistic and, and unified block in Anatolia in the um, Eastern Mediterranean is kind of affecting the trade orientation and how, how it's, um, you know, I don't want to re- constantly refocus back to the West, but you know how, how it's affecting the, the central European poli- polities. Sure. It's, I mean, it, it's, been the case that right like to trade with china to trade with india for for centuries i mean you've had to go through some islamic or you know briefly i guess when the mongols before the mongols converted on mass uh but some non-christian uh, empire has sat in this in this region and the europeans have had to go through them uh i think the difference is uh well there's a couple of things one uh, like the Mongols were always open for business. They welcomed, you know, European travelers, European traders. They were, uh, they wanted to make money, and the Ottomans want to make money too. But they want to do it more on their terms, and militarily, they're a little more engaged in, uh, you know, places that are closer to uh, Europe or in Europe, in fact, uh, than than these other things. So they're a little more of a direct threat. And there's the fact that they they do put a lot of resources into developing a navy that can rival uh, any navy in Europe for a time. They win a couple of really uh, major naval engagements over the course of the 16th century, uh, but but even before that, they're uh, you know they're warring with Venice. They're they're gaining uh, not so much commercial control because they they still allow European merchants to kind of do the the, the lifting here and, and kind of control the trade routes but um it, it's it, it's under their terms you know increasingly it's under their terms they're the ones uh providing the security or not for these ships um once they conquer constantinople i mean that's sort of the the western terminus of the the so-called silk road uh, and that really locks this down and, and uh, puts it under Ottoman control. So I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't say 
this is why the Europeans or why the, the Western European states, Portugal and Spain, start looking for other ways to, to get to the places that they want to get to uh, to do business. But it's, it's part, I think it's part of the reason why they, they start investing in this stuff. Okay, well then let's move into the um, the 16th century uh, when you know the Ottomans start you know speaking along these lines, uh, becoming more involved in direct European uh, conflict. You know, I, I mentioned the uh, alliance between the French and the Ottomans. Uh, what what is going on with you know the the political history of the Ottomans in the in the 16th century? So uh, these are the two. I mean, the two. Uh, Ottoman rulers of the the first part of the the 16th century are generally considered to be if you're if you're picking a golden age if you're kind of narrowing it down this is this is the golden age and that's Selim the uh, first who takes power in 1512 uh, and Suleiman uh, I love these guys because they have great names Suleiman uh, is either Suleiman the magnificent or uh, Kanuni Sultan Suleiman Suleiman the lawgiver. Uh, and Salim is even better. His his epithet is Yavuz Sultan Salim or Salim the Grim uh, has been translated <laughs> into English. It's really it would be better translated as like Salim the Resolute. Uh, but for some reason, for some reason, Salim, he's the, known grumpy. As Salim the Grim. Yeah, Salim, <laughs> Salim the Grouchy. Um, so uh, Salim uh, to me is is the most consequential for only ruling eight years. I mean, you kind of look at this and think, well, how good could he have been? He died young. Uh, but for, you know, in terms of just like, uh, importance divided by the amount of time that he was in power, like the most consequential ruler, uh, in Ottoman history, he did uh, a couple of, of tremendous things. One at, in 1514 at the battle of Chalderon, he just waxed the Safavids. I mean, totally, uh, ended any threat they might have posed uh, to the empire. They won't pose a threat again until for about a century, maybe uh, uh, till, until, let's say, the early 17th century. Um, and then in 1516, 17, he fights a campaign against the Mamluk Sultanate and des- destroys it and annexes uh, the entire Mamluk Sultanate. He, he expands the, uh, the territory of the empire by about 70%. Uh, Egypt is tremendously wealthy, uh, you talk about trade routes now. Not only do they control, do the Ottomans control the Silk Road terminus in, in Constantinople? They control the spice trade terminus, which had gone through the Red Sea from India uh, to Cairo. That's that's now under Ottoman control as well. Uh, and along with that, the Mamluks had controlled Mecca and Medina, so the Ottomans get uh, control of the two holiest cities in Islam. They're able to portray themselves even more as kind of the supreme Islamic power. They control the pilgrimages. Uh, at this point to to Mecca. So it adds a lot of prestige. Uh, I mentioned the Shadow Caliphate, the Abbasids in Cairo. Later on, they don't really emphasize this uh, in the moment, but later on, uh, the story will be that the last Shadow Abbasid Caliph in Cairo bequeathed the Caliphate to the Ottomans. And so they're now uh, the Caliphs as well, the legal Caliphs. They start using the title Caliph, but it's more as kind of just a, uh, a propaganda thing to kind of put them on par with, let's say, the emperors and you know the Habsburg emperors or these other uh, European entities. But uh, they they do make an emphasis of that, maybe more like 18th, 19th centuries. Uh, that and then that takes us into Suleiman, who is uh, you know generally considered to be the he's magnificent, folks. He's what magnificent. Are you argue? Yes. <laughs> Regarded as the greatest of the Ottoman sultans, he expands into Rhodes. Uh, he, he takes the island of Rhodes. He conquers. 
much of Hungary. There's the first battle of Mohat. Uh, we can talk about uh, the two battles of Mohat, which I, I love because it's a great bookend uh, thing on Ottoman expansion. But in 1526, uh, then in 1529, of course, there's the famous first siege of Vienna, uh, which fails mostly because of a wet spring and the Ottomans <laughs> aren't able to get there siege guns across the Balkans to, to Vienna. A lot of their pack animals die. Uh, the autumn, the army gets really sick. And so uh, what, by the time they get to Vienna, they're really in no shape uh, to, to do anything. Suleiman also takes Baghdad uh, from the Safavids. Uh, he, he signs a peace uh, called the peace of Amasya in, in 1555 that sets essentially for, for the rest of history sets the boundary between kind of the Arab world and the Iranian world, you could say. Uh, expands into Libya, uh, besieges the the Knights of Malta or the Knights Hospitaller on Malta in 1565 unsuccessfully, uh, but still they're they're projecting themselves you know halfway across the Mediterranean at this point. Uh, he's known as Kanuni Suleiman because he he uh, codified uh, Ottoman civil law or secular law up to that point. So just a hugely consequential uh, ruler, and and I think well deserves the the title of magnificent especially compared with some of the guys who came after him but you know let's let's not uh, denigrate anybody and it's i mean it's also important at least for me to remember like thinking about the european polities we've been looking at you know all these tiny fractional holy roman empire regions you know even at its greatest expanse of like charles v's european empire not to talk about his colonial holdings we are talking for, with the ottomans a massive land land empire now in in Africa and the Middle East. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's no comparison with anything in Europe. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we get Suleiman, uh, and he takes the Ottoman Empire to its greatest expanse of power and influence. And then his traditional historiography says that this is when Ottoman decline begins. You said that that's been challenged in recent years. There's a new understanding of that. But this is also the time that that general crisis that racks the entire world uh, right. also hits the Ottoman Empire. So that is an exogenous element that, that is all of the post-Suleiman uh, sultans are going to have to deal with. So what does the Ottoman Empire look like during this uh, 17th century crisis, and how does it respond? So we start to see, I mean, you do start to see a, a leveling off in a sense. And I would say the, the, the historiography uh, that once posited that, you know, after uh, basically at Suleiman's death in 1566, the Ottoman Empire went into terminal decline from which it never pulled out, which uh, only ever made sense, I think, to Ottomanists. Like any normal person, if you said, uh, here's an empire that went into decline in 1566 but didn't go away until 1920 you know whatever 1918 uh they would look at you like you were in a, you know what are you talking about that's absurd uh and so the 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 historiography has has tended to focus more on ottoman transformation rather than decline uh, especially in these first couple of uh centuries let's say after Suleiman's death and it it, it transitions away from a an empire based on conquest, an empire where the sultans rule in a very patrimonial kind of autarkic style as uh, you know as individually day-to-day 
uh, running the empire, you know, commanding armies in the field, uh, the kind of thing where the quality or lack thereof of an individual sultan can really affect uh, the course of the empire. It transitions to more bureaucratic. Uh, it's based on taxation, uh, not expanding nearly as much. Um, and, and the sultans kind of, the, the sultanate doesn't fade into the background, but the individual sultans tend to kind of, uh, fade into the background as, as, you know, grand viziers become more important. Um, palace eunuchs become more important women in the palace. These are all things we can, we can get into, but that's sort of the overall, uh, kind of historiographical change. Um, Suleiman is is succeeded by his son Selim II, and this comes after it, there's a, a period here of serious kind of interdynastic strife. Suleiman has a couple of his sons murdered for various offenses, and to kind of pave the way for uh, for Selim, one of his sons Mehmed, who was probably in line to be the the successor, died of smallpox. So this sort of sent the uh, sent things into a, a, a bit of a tailspin. Uh, the, uh, there's some manipulation by, uh, Suleiman's wives. This may be the first instance of kind of the, the Royal women getting involved in power machinations. Uh, and so Selim is, is not necessarily the guy who was supposed to succeed, but he, he does take power. Uh, he fights, uh, a war against another war against Venice, uh, in the 1570s. Uh, this is the, of course, when the, the famous battle of Lepanto takes place, um, the Ottomans lose that battle. Uh, they win the war. They, the war is over Cyprus and they actually wind up con- capturing Cyprus. And there's this great line that, uh, the grand vizier at the time, Mehmet Sokolu says, I think to the Venetian ambassador, uh, basically he says, you know, you, when you defeated us at Lepanto, you shaved our beard, uh, but when we defeated you at, on Cyprus, we took away your, we cut off your arm, and our beard will grow back, but your arm will never grow back. And they're sort of <laughs> so the Ottomans feel like they've come out ahead here. But Lepanto is a big deal. It shows that, um, especially in naval technology and naval tactics, the Ottomans are falling behind uh, the Europeans. The Europeans have uh, what are called galleasses, which are a little bit bigger than the traditional galley. Uh, they ha- they can actually fire a broadside. They have cannons, you know, kind of along the sides of the ship. Uh, they're much more capable uh, than a galley. They're harder to move around, uh, but that's one of the big reasons they win the battle. So it's clear that the the Europeans are kind of outstripping. Uh, I say Europeans. I mean, the Ottomans are a European power, but this is like shorthand for me. Sorry, uh, but this is you know this is cl- it's clear that they're outstripping the Ottomans in a- at least in this way. Another. Big change under Salim is that he doesn't go out on campaign. He's the first Ottoman sultan who really doesn't uh, do that. And and later Ottoman sultans who try to go out on campaign will be gently encouraged not to, to do that <laughs> because they're uh, they're not good at it anymore. I mean, we're saying um, the same thing in in Europe where it's like we still have a few <laughs> like, of these kings who will lead from the front, but then we are yeah, finding just, out very quickly that home. the uh, yeah, the yeah. government is becoming complicated enough that it's maybe more. <laughs> Valuable to have your your king stay comfortably on the throne and have somebody else do the fighting. <laughs> so uh, then he's followed by Murad III uh, in 1574, and this is where you really start to see the Little Ice Age start happening. The the some of the effects of the Age of Discovery start to kick in. So the things that you guys have been talking about uh, in the show, Murad uh, still expand. The Ottomans are still expanding. This is another reason why this idea of terminal decline is is uh, discredited because they're 
they're still they expanded to Morocco. It's more of in a, a kind of uh, suzerain way. They're not like directly running Morocco, but they they get uh, you know tribute paid and and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, they win uh, a war against the Safavids. Uh, they're interestingly, Murad is actually in contact with Queen Elizabeth at this point, uh, trying to argue that Protestantism and Islam. Uh, are are kindred religions and they have more in common uh, with <laughs> each other than they do with Catholicism. Um, now, now I'm imagining a Muslim Martha, Martin Luther. You know, <laughs> uh, Murad yeah, is, uh, is just take the take the reforms full circle. Yeah, Scultatus did that yeah, too. Well, see, that's it's interesting. I mean, that's one of the things we can talk about. I I I, I, find, I have a hard time envisioning what that would look like, but it is. Uh, it is an interesting idea. Murad is forced uh, because of the uh, basically because of things that are happening in Europe, uh, the price revolution. Uh, the Ottomans are struggling because they don't have access to all this new kind of specie mm-hmm. that's uh, available to the Europeans, and, and they start to uh, have to take some some economic steps. They they debase their uh, the akcha, this their silver coin, which leads to one of many Janissary uh, rebellions. Mm. Uh, the Janissaries we can talk about the the Ottoman infantry the uh, standing army uh, they 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 don't they're not happy for a lot of this period they they really have a lot of grievances uh, and they have the power to to you know uh, make those grievances a problem and and uh, they become a, an issue um, it also uh, this is also a period where the Ottomans start cracking down on uh, taxes there's been a lot of kind of lax enforcement of tax collection. Uh, and start adding new taxes because they're trying to pay for their wars, and the expansion uh, has slowed down. Certainly, uh, Murad is is known for being more isolated than past sultans. He tends to stay in the palace. Uh, he's one of many, I think, sultans to come who would probably have been much happier doing something else, like being <laughs> a poet or an artist or something. You know, not not being responsible for this massive empire. He's also interesting because. Uh, He's uh, very devoted to his wife, Safiya Sultan, monogamous to her apparently to the point where he was unable to perform with other women in the harem. And there was a serious concern uh, about there not, you know, not being any princes left to take over. And so uh, supposedly the court doctors did something. I don't know what it was, but uh, they did something to like rev him up and he started you know, nailing everything that he could find and uh, wound up fathering over a hundred children by one account, which may be an exaggeration, but I think uh, you know, is, is, is interesting. Um, you also see in this period kind of uh, the, the groundwork for uh, something called the Jalali Revolts. Uh, which really kicks in uh, as we get into the 1590s, but we can you know talk about that mo- uh, as we move forward. Uh, that's one of the big, I think, un- not unexplored, maybe underexplored uh, parts of, of Ottoman history in this period in terms of why the empire starts looking inward and stops you know really uh, engaging with uh, European affairs. Okay, so now we're at like basically the eve of the Thirty Years' War. Uh, here. In yeah, the you're like turn of the 17th century at this point. Yeah, so maybe it's time, uh, a moment to take a, a look at like, as you were saying, some of the things that you were saying we could address later, like what what is the empire look like from a uh, you know bureaucratic standpoint like how is the army functioning like how how is it does it work internally you know what wh- what kind of polity is this? Sure. I mean, we can start with the the military because this is you know very important to to the political 
future of the empire. Initially, uh, the Ottomans are are a cavalry have a cavalry based army. It's it's recruited from um, what are called sepahis. Uh, it, it's sort of a feudal type of arrangement. The, the, the sepahis are cavalry officers. They're given land grants uh, under the sultan. Uh, they're then obliged to provide military service when called upon. They're supposed to furnish their own horses and uh, furnish men at arms to come with them. Uh, and they're also typically responsible for taxation in their territories, and they kick you know, what they need to kick upstairs. Um, it's a little bit different from a feudal relationship because there's no automatic inheritance. The, the sultans still reserve the right to strip these guys of their land holdings and reassign them or do, you know, whatever. Uh, often it winds up being uh, inherited because, I mean, if the son, if the, the last guy was okay, if his son promises to keep, you know, providing service, whatever, there's no reason to really rock the boat. Uh, they do, they do engage a number of mercenaries. And as I say, in the very early days, you know, it may just be a raiding, it may just be like a, basically a raiding party that, uh, you know, coalesced around Osman because he was particularly good at uh, raiding and people could get rich off the the booty that they earned fighting with him. Uh, but under Murad I really is when you see, start to see the rise of a slave military apparatus. It's called the Kapakulu. Uh, it's based on something that's called the Devshirme, which is an annual uh, basically uh, conscription of children, sons of Christians. You can't, you can't, enslave Muslims. That's against the rules. Uh, but they, they enslave the sons of Christian families, uh, under the empire's control. Uh, and this becomes the core of the Janissary force. Initially, they're a bodyguard for the Sultan. Uh, they become very good archers. Uh, and then the Ottomans are very early gunpowder adopters. So like as early as, uh, middle to late 14th century, they're already starting to play around with cannons and firearms. Uh, this then transitions to what's thought of as the classical Ottoman military from Mehmed the Conqueror uh, through really where we've just wound up in the the history uh, that's oriented around the Janissaries. They're the first. They're, they're really arguably the first professional standing army uh, in Europe. They are at least the first professional standing army to use firearms uh, in Europe. Uh, the Ottomans are very sophisticated about building cannons for siege siege weapons and adopting field guns. Uh, the, the infrastructure becomes more and more sophisticated. Uh, you, you start to see, you know, divisions between heavy cavalry units and light cavalry units, uh, irregular infantry or light infantry becomes a part of this. They adopt the wagon fortress, uh, from the Hungarians, which goes back to the, the Hussites. Um, and, and, you know, they're just very sophisticated about this. They're the first, they have the first military band. They're the first to use kind of paramilitaries as, uh, sort of, you know, to guard places, sites that they've taken or to, uh, you know, do kind of engineering work and things of that nature. Uh, they're building cannon foundries. They're building shipyards. Uh, again, we talked a little bit about naval development. They got v quite good at building galleys. They never really went past that until after Lepanto, they experiment with these galley ass, slightly larger uh, ships. They never get into ocean going vessels because there's not really any uh, impetus for them to do that, but that's part of the reason why they uh, they really suffer in, in the naval aspect later on. It gets to the point by the end of this period, by the time we get to uh, sort of the end of the 16th century, where the Janissaries are 
so powerful uh, that they're able to demand concessions from the sultanate. Uh, even as even by the mid 15th century, they're sort of demanding every time a new sultan comes in, they have to pay some kind of bonus to the Janissaries to keep them happy, to keep them from from revolting. And they recognize how much power they have. And so by the early 17th century, they're doing, we'll get into this, they're doing coups, they're doing regicides. Uh, they're just, you know, anytime they're pissed off, they're they're revolting and it's, you know, causing chaos. Uh, later on, the uh, you know the the things really start to change. The war as as the expansionary aspect of of Ottoman history kind of closes. The frontier closes, if you want to say want to put it that way. Uh, war stops being an economic opportunity, becomes basically a pure cost to the treasury, pure loss. Uh, there's heavily there's increasing dependence on mercenaries that are called sekban. Uh, who are hired by governors. Governors now get this responsibility of like, you you have to pay for these guys. The central treasury can't do it. You do it. Uh, and so governors are hiring them, but then like letting them go because they don't want to pay them out of their, you know, tax <laughs> holdings. Uh, so there become, it becomes a problem in terms of, you know, these bands of mercenaries now don't have jobs. So they start raiding villages and, and you know, that's part of the, the background to the Jalali revolt. Um, the Janissaries, as the Ottomans find themselves under more pressure, and again, we're kind of on the verge of this, but they're fighting at one point uh, at the start of the 17th century, like three different wars at the same time, and it's really uh, starts to, be able to put a strain on their manpower. So they start opening recruitment to the Janissaries up to Muslims. Uh, the Devshir may have is, essentially goes away. Sons of Janissaries are the first, because Jan- the Janissaries all had to convert uh, to Islam as part of their kind of uh, enslavement. But now their sons are eligible to serve, which had never been the case before. They relax uh, rules for the Janissaries on things like getting married or uh, owning businesses, other kinds of economic activity. Even uh, they weren't supposed to grow beards for a while, but they're now allowed to grow beards. Like just a lot of things to keep recruitment going. The recruitment age ticks up because you're you're trying to find more and more soldiers, and it's the discipline. The training, there's the, the the amount of training that they get is is decreased, and the discipline starts to fray. And I think that's a part of the reason you see uh, more and more kind of uh, rebellions uh, out of this group. They're still quite sophisticated in terms of their use of firearms. There are a couple of I, I think 17th century Chinese writers uh, who wind up uh, traveling uh, into Ottoman territory and. Uh, comment that you know ottoman guns are the most advanced weapons in the world uh so this is still a period where they're kind of toward the the forefront of uh military technology but but definitely not as 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 uh dominant as they had been previously uh and then we're going to talk well okay we can talk about politics there is uh, i spent a lot of time on the military sorry Uh, you know i mean I, i would just say that you know i think it's interesting all the things that you're saying even though they had their own Systems kind of uh, rise organically, you know, all the things that you're saying about the difficulties of maintaining and using a mercenary company uh, as your main, you know, forces of power is should be very familiar to the people who listen to the rest <laughs> right, of this right. series I mean, and the difficulties that arise with the mercenary armies in Central Europe at the same time. It's 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 a difficult system. And what happens when you don't pay your mercenaries? It seems like it's the same all over. They, the, uh, they get their money the anyway. They, yes, they, exactly. They have their ways. Uh, so the other, I mean, the political uh, trend in this period is uh, in favor of the, the development of bureaucracy. Uh, the, the empire really becomes uh, or starts to become, it takes a couple of centuries, but it really becomes more of a, a bureaucratic state 
than what you would think of as sort of the typical patrimonial empire. Mm -hmm. Um, This is, again, it's another reaction to the kind of the slowing down of conquest and the fact that uh, there's no longer, you know, no longer acquiring uh, new wealth by by conquering new places and taxation becomes more and more important. As I said, they start cracking down on tax cheats. Uh, they're they're taxing, of course, always taxing uh, non-Muslim subjects uh, with what's called the jizya or the poll tax, which is uh, mandatory for uh, Christians and and Jews in particular to pay. So that and in return, they're kind of allowed to practice their own faith. They're allowed to be governed by their own uh, religious rules. But they then uh, they do some other things. There's there's something called the avariz, which is a war tax that's only supposed to be imposed uh, during times of war, during times of emergency. That becomes basically a regular taxation. It just becomes uh, you know. Uh, that's the way things are done. These uh, Timars, the 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 land grants that they had been giving to the cavalry officers, start to shift to more of a tax farm model, uh, which is known as the iltizam, uh, and essentially they're like three year contracts that are given to people to uh, you know take get as much revenue out of this place as you can, and you, then you're responsible to pay X percent of it or you know some amount to the central treasury. And this tends to encourage very exploitative local government, uh, you know, people trying to just, you know, wring as much money out of uh, areas as they can. Uh, but this is based on, on a model that they adopt from, from the Egyptians. Uh, we see a rise in uh, the preeminence or the power of grand viziers uh, vis-a-vis the sultans. Uh, there are a few names here. I mean, Sokolu Mehmed Pasha, I mentioned uh, with his little quote to the the Venetians, but he's one. Uh, he's Grand Vizier from 1565 to 1579. Very, very powerful figure. And are, uh, are these viziers? Is this a appointed position under the the sultans, or is this something that is arrived at meritocratically? Um, I mean, you, you kind of work your way up. A lot of these guys are recruited from uh, the 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 Dev So. Uh, initially, I mean that that starts to go away, but but up to this point, I think it's safe to say they're they're most of them, many of them are being brought in through that process, and you kind of identify as you're training, uh, you know who's good at fighting, who's good at you know who's who would make a good military officer, who would make a good administrator, and so there's a lot of different paths that these guys can follow, and and maybe you know you go from being an admiral to being, you know, the grand vizier sometime, you know, it, it depends. I mean, it's different career paths and it's, they're appointed by the, the Sultan. But, uh, one of the interesting thing that, that we see a little bit after this period, starting in the 1650s is there's a rise uh, of a family called the Koperlus, uh, and they kind of take over the grand vizierate, uh, with very few kind of, uh, exceptions from the 1650s through, uh, about 1710 or 1711, they controlled the Grand Vizierate, uh, and they are responsible in a period where the the quality of the sultans is maybe really starting to decline. They they hold the empire together, and they uh, the empire continues to to f- you know do pretty well for itself uh, through that period. But it's because it, you know again in a change from the way things had been, it's really because of the quality of these viziers. Uh, another thing that we see, and again, is, is sort of a function of, of some of the stuff that happens in this early 17th century, uh, where politics uh, are are brought into the palace. There's there's very little 
uh, engagement by princes uh, outside of the outside world anymore. Uh, there's a lot of rise in influence of palace functionaries, and no, not just functionaries. The, the the women, the wives of sultans, can engineer succession for their sons versus the son of you know some other consort. Uh, the queen mothers, uh, the valida sultan. Uh, they become very important to some of these uh, sultans who either take take the throne very young or take the throne in, uh, you know, in the case of Mustafa, let's say Mustafa the Mad, as he's known, uh, maybe <laughs> not altogether uh, capable of of ruling the empire. Uh, so women become very important, and and uh, there's a lot of kind of drama that goes on behind the scenes involving their jockeying for position. Uh, the eunuchs, the palace eunuchs, also become very important. There's a couple of preeminent eunuch positions, the Kape Aga, uh, who's the gatekeeper, uh, sort of monitors uh, access to the sultan, uh, is for a while one of the most important, rivaling the grand vizier is one of the most important uh, kind of a, officials a in the bureaucracy. chief of staff position. Yeah, kind of a chief of staff position. He's uh, That position is eventually, eventually supplanted by what's known as the Kislar Aga, uh, the keeper of the women, uh, who's basically responsible for, for managing the harem. Uh, that position uh, eventually becomes really, again, rivaling the Grand Vizier, one of the most important. Uh, it's interesting. These are you known know, a as a good way uh, the, to get to the uh, Sultan's ear. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You kind of you know pick your favorites and, and you, you have relationships with the, the women who, again, are, are very uh, influential in, in the politics uh, of the time. Uh, these are often known as the, the chief white eunuch and the chief black eunuch because the Kappa Aga tended to be a European slave and the Kislar Aga tended to be uh, an African slave. And so uh, you'll see them referred to uh, by those titles uh, sometimes. Uh, so that's, that's basically, you know, where the, the bureaucracy is at. Now, the, as far as the Sultanate is concerned, again, we're starting to see this already. The Sultans become uh, further removed from the day-to-day running of the, the empire. They're not on campaign anymore. They're not even really going out of the palace that much anymore. They're not seen by the public anymore. Um, it, the rule, and again, we need to talk, we can talk about the, the dynastic aspects of this first part, first half of the 17th century, uh, but there's more emphasis on kind of the uh, legitimacy or the power of the dynasty as a whole, instead of any individual sultan, part of this has to do with uh, the increasing emphasis of, on religion. The conquest of Cairo and Mecca and Medina uh, kind of gives the the Ottoman family a certain prestige that it maybe hadn't necessarily had before. Um, the The end of the period of fratricides, which is again something we're we're about to talk about, uh, that also creates more of a focus on the dynasty versus the individual, um, and so yeah, it's it's sort of a the bureaucracy moves to the front and the sultans kind of move to the back. They're more of a national symbol uh, than uh, actual you know functioning. And it, I mean, there are exceptions. There are sultans who want to have more or less. Uh, of a of a role in kind of the the day to day running of the empire, but uh, I think as I said with uh, with one of these guys, maybe it was uh, Murad the the third or whatever. The, they there there's a lot of guys who who seem like they would have been happier as like architects or <laughs> poets or you know something, and at least one who would have been happy. Ibrahim later on would have been happy just uh, staying in the harem with the the ladies. Uh, so it's it's it's. Uh, a bit of a mixed bag at this point. So the Ottoman Empire has the this uh, 
they suffer through the same tumultuous mid 17th century as Europe does. Uh, at the at the end of it, though, uh, at, the, uh, at the end of that period, they're able to stabilize and uh, go back on the offensive. And that's when you see the, the last big stab to claim Vienna in 1683. Uh, right. The, with the siege, with the Jan Sobieski's winged hussars. We love to talk about the hussars, folks. <laughs> uh, uh, and that's that's the beginning of a, of a, of a long war uh, with the Habsburgs that ends with the first uh, treaty that the Ottomans have to sign with the European power on unfavorable terms. So is, is, this is sort of when that decline kicks in. But as you say, it's not really an absolute decline within the Ottoman territory, so much as it is a relative decline to Europe, the rest of Europe, right. which is now able to, which is now starts developing capacities that at that point had not been able to, to marshal and which eventually eclipse uh, the Ottomans. How do you uh, imagine, in your mind, what is the key element that leads to this divergence between the Ottoman powers and the European ones then in the, in the late 16th and early 17th century? Yeah. I mean, I think the groundwork is, is laid, um, starts to be laid with uh, the little ice age and, the the Ottomans find themselves, uh, as I as I think I said earlier, they find themselves in kind of the second half of the 1590s and is the at the turn of the century, uh, fighting three wars. They're fighting a war against the Habsburgs over Transylvania, uh, called the Long Turkish War from 1593 to 1506. This is where uh, uh, Bethlen Gabor is running around, switching sides, yes. trying to get the best terms. They're fighting a war. They 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 fight a war against the Safavids that begins in 1603 uh, and runs through 1618, where the Safavids actually win. The Safavids have uh, really rebuilt their military. They have their their one good, the one really capable Safavid ruler, uh, Shah Abbas the first, uh, rebuilds the the Safavid military with European help uh, based kind of on the Ottoman model with uh, kind of a, a pseudo-Janissary corps from, uh, recruited from the Caucasus, and, and they're able to win that war. Uh, and then there's also the, the Jalali rebellions, which, take, which break out uh, in the 1590s. Uh, there are a series of unrelated uh, revolts in Anatolia that um, are, are rooted in a number of things. The, 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 there's a lot of pop- population flux that happens here in the, the for much of the 16th century there's there's a sort of a population boom and then we start to see what looks like a depopulation and so there's a lot of transition kind of upheaval happening here the inflation uh the the debasement of the the akcha uh the the loss of uh productive farmland because of climate change uh the janissaries are kind of roaming around abusing people there are these uh mercenaries that are roaming around uh, abusing people uh taxation is increasing and it just starts to break people and that you see these revolts which are uh, almost unprecedented there have been a few there have been some unrest uh, in previous times in ottoman history but uh almost unprecedented in terms of the size and the number of them um, uh, it's, it, it, they're, they're fighting all these things simultaneously and it really taxes, uh, the infrastructure and the capacity of the empire. This is the same period where, uh, as I said, the, the method of succession starts to change. Uh, it changes really after Mehmed III takes power and murders 19 of his brothers upon <laughs> succession. This seems to be even too much for the Ottomans. They're like, okay, that's it. Uh, enough is enough. And when Mehmed dies and is succeeded by Ahmed the first, 
uh, he he's uh, he doesn't have his brother Mustafa executed. Uh, partly this is because Mustafa is the only other Ottoman prince who's still alive at this point. So there is a dynastic concern. But also I think they, they were just tired of this like mass slaughter that, that uh, attended every new sultan. Uh, was this Ahmed, like was this like f- almost formalized in a way? Like it was. You, I mean, it was expected in a, in a sense. Yeah, that that this is what like you would everybody kind of lined up and was like, "All right, now I guess it's my turn." Mehmed right, and it's it, it's so. an artifact again of the fact that Murad the Third, as I said, they you know they uh, got some I don't know uh, Viagra into his <laughs> wine or something, and he fathered all these kids toward the end of his life. That there were all these, and they were all they were most of them were very young. That I think that probably added to the the sense of you know kind of distaste about about this incident um but then ahmed uh leaves his brother alive this is a a real sea change in in ottoman uh, politics and ottoman succession uh when ahmed dies uh, in uh i believe 1617 he is succeeded by his brother who's known as delhi mustafa or mustafa the mad to to give you a sense of oh that's not a hell how, That's how just bad luck. Well the one went. time you're trying to get the system to not involve <laughs> yeah, so much exactly. murder, the one guy you don't murder is the mad. <laughs> it's always, the history always has a curveball for you. So there's some question about how, how mad he actually was. Um, he does seem to have been fairly antisocial. Uh, which may have just been because he never went out of the uh, palace. Mus- because again, Mustafa you're at a point now. Int J. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mustafa the introvert. Um, so, you know, he, he definitely was not up to the task of, of ruling the empire, but he's, uh, he, he does, you know, I think the best, the best he can uh, and is deposed in 1618 in favor of Osman II. Now, Osman II rules until 1622, gets into a beef with the Janissaries who have him strangled to death. And this is a, the regicide is another sea change. This is a, a real kind of you're on notice that the Janissaries, even the sultans are not safe anymore from, from the Janissaries. Mustafa comes back. He's put back in power uh, in 1622, but only stays there for a few months. There's a, another one of these Jalali revolts, this time directly stemming from the the murder of Osman II and, and sort of uh, there's a governor who, who wants to see justice done for Osman's death. Uh, and Mustafa is encouraged to step down I don't think he needed that much encouragement, uh, but he, he does step down. Uh, you know, then you see again; it's it's a story of multiple revolts, uh, multiple threats. The Safavids continue to be a threat. Uh, the Janissaries continue to be a problem. Uh, there's an epidemic in 1625 that really takes a, a big bite out of the empire. Empire uh, Murad the Fourth, who's in power at this time, drinks himself to death. So again, you know, kind of. They're not sending their best at this point. He's another guy who I think would have been happier, much happier as like a musician or something. Uh, he's replaced by Ibrahim, who also is believed to have not necessarily been uh, right in the head. Uh, now, Ibrahim uh, becomes known as uh, the French called him Le Fou de Forêts. Oh, my French is so bad, but like the idiot of the furs, basically, because he's <laughs> like, this is, he's the archetype for. Europeans who want to portray the Ottoman Empire as this decadent Oriental uh, place where the Sultan, you know, gets grapes peeled for him by the the ladies. This is this is Ibrahim. He's sort of he stays in the 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 palace. He spends most of his time with the women. Uh, he likes to wear fancy clothes, and so you know, there's not a lot of 
strong uh, anything coming out of the Sultanate at this point. They do, but uh, again, during this period, they fight the Cretan War uh, against, again, Venice, 1645 to 1669. Another argument against, I think, the decline of the empire. They win. They they defeat the Cretans. They, they take the island, or they defeat the Venetians. They take the island of Crete. Uh, severely weakened, almost broke uh, Venice at this point. I mean, this is really, you know, sort of the end of their maritime dominance. Um, and, but long term, it did have a, a really deleterious effect on the Ottoman treasury. Uh, they lost men they couldn't afford to replace. Uh, Ibrahim is another one uh, who's executed by the Janissaries during a revolt in 1648. So again, uh, internally, the the cohesion is uh, is not great. So I, you know, I just think. It's the same pressures that a lot of the the European states were facing, coupled with the fact that there's a huge amount of transition going on uh, behind the scenes and the ways that power is dealt with and the ways that, uh, you know, what the channels of power are. Uh, I I would even go so far as to argue that the empire never gets a chance really – to consolidate all the gains that it makes during the 16th century with Egypt, uh, Syria, the Hejaz, Libya, all these territories in Europe uh, that Suleiman adds. It's just a tremendous amount of change all at once that I, I think it, it, they never fully um, kind of accommodate. And and part of the evidence, I think, for that is that Egypt, by I would say the end of the 17th century, certainly by the time Napoleon shows up at the end of the 18th century, is back essentially under the Mamluks again. They're they're not a full sultanate, but uh, you know that the Mamluk class never went away, and the Ottomans put a governor in charge. But the governor by that point is basically like imprisoned in in the palace in Cairo, and the Mamluks are kind of running hog wild, doing doing whatever they want. So I just feel like it's it's it was just too much. Uh, for the the empire's capacity to to adapt to it, and also they because it is an empire, it is this centralized authority run through this bureaucracy, uh, and it has a, a vested interest in maintaining stability, maintaining hierarchy as it exists. They're not able to do the sort of uh, desperate innovation that occurs in the European smaller states, uh, so that they can cobble together something like uh, the merchant capitalism of of the Dutch or the English, uh, because that would be too disruptive to a, right. a, a, a empire. And so the very thing that lets them dominate uh, the 14th, 15th century is what makes them end up getting left in the dust by these smaller polities that are able to, because of their need to, the necessity of their in, of competing with the other powers, are able to uh, push beyond what a uh, centralizing uh, imperial authority would ever allow either in the uh, Ottoman empire or in uh, India or in China. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I, not to, you know, extol the virtues of, of continent wide war, but, uh, the fact that you have all these States and there's, there's not this same level of control, uh, over, you know, overarching control of the, the territory. And you can, you know, they, they're competing with one another. They're going to war with one another. Uh, I think it really does create a kind of crucible for, for, uh, innovation or changes that uh, then later are rolled out. I mean, there's uh, I, William McNeil, the uh, Chicago historian who wrote a lot of like Rise of the West type stuff and history of Western civilization, that type of thing. He, he did a, wrote a book called The Pursuit of Power, which is about firearms uh, development. And he really traced the history of this technology from initially something that was 
really favored large, wealthy states to you know to to ha- that had the the uh, money to invest in building cannons and in you know manufacturing uh, firearms, manufacturing guns, uh, you know, and so it favored entities like the Ottoman Empire over smaller entities or even you know nomadic groups, which had been the big you know one of the big threats up until that point. Um, but, but it's, as he, you know, writes in the book, it's, it's really in the competitions between like the Italian city states and the, uh, you know, the principal, the smaller principalities of Europe that you see real innovations in, uh, you know, the ways the cannons work or in the ways of fortifications are built that develops all this stuff that then when the Europeans take it out on the road, uh, is just so much further beyond what, what, uh, the Ottomans are, or, uh, you know, these other big empires had developed because there was no need to. I mean, as I said earlier, they never developed, uh, they never really got into ocean going ships like ships of the line, like galleons, because why would you? I mean, yeah. they, to the extent that the Ottomans uh, needed to, to get around by sea, it was either in the Mediterranean or they did start to kind of engage in, in the Indian Ocean, but they could do that, you know, basically hopping port to port and kind of a literal uh, sense they never really had to sail across long distances of they didn't need a uh, blue ocean, water navy so yeah. they were well, right yeah, to exactly. all of exactly. the crucial uh, uh, trade networks from east to west it's like well, what do I got to do but right. out there dangling over into the Atlantic it's 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 get uh, get long distance shipping or starve basically exactly exactly well we. I have a little bit of time left, and so uh, I think that we should do something that we love to do on this show, which is counterfactuals. <laughs> what if the Turk had indeed taken Vienna? Would that change anything, or would it just be uh, one more node in this expansion that can never be uh, consolidated? If they, When did they come closest? Like When would that have theoretically happened? So uh, I think the the obvious answer is 1529 was the closest they came, because, again, it was like a fluke of, of weather. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a very rainy spring. They set out uh, to besiege Vienna on, on May 10th, 1529, and didn't get there until the end of September uh, because it was so such a slog. And they wound up leaving all their big cannons behind. A lot of their camels and other pack animals died. Uh, the army was very ill. By the time they got there, the only thing they could do was to try to like sap the walls uh, of the city and the defenders, the garrison was able to stop them. Uh, so they really just kind of pawed at the walls for a couple of weeks and then went home. That said, uh, they, they made Suleiman made another attempt in 1532 uh, to, to advance on Vienna and they were stopped in what I think amounts to another fluke, basically at a city called Guns or Koseg, depending on, uh, where you uh, where you come from, but they're stopped by a garrison of Croatians. There's like 800 guys, I think, like not much, maybe a thousand at most, uh, and just they just can't take this city, and they're delayed for a whole month, and then wind up marching again. By the by, the time the siege ends and they move on, wind up again in rainy season, and they just pack it up uh, and turn around and go home. So I I, I would I would say. That may have even been more fluky, uh, you know, an outcome than uh, than fifteen twenty nine. Now in sixteen eighty three, uh, they're just beaten. I mean, they 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 face a, an army, uh, the Hussar, uh, the, the the Hussar cavalry, the the Polish Lithuanian army. It just just drives them off the field once it arrives. So I don't I don't think they could have 
taken the city. And if they had taken it, I don't think they could have held it uh, for very long. So I think you're looking at one of these first two sieges. And I thought about this because I know I knew you guys wanted to talk about it. And my my sense is that if they had taken Vienna in either of these earlier sieges, it would have basically been a race uh, to see who could respond, who could who could either you know on the Ottoman side to fortify and consolidate that gain, and on the European side, how quickly would would they have been able to put together uh, basically a holy league uh, to dislodge them? So uh, it's a couple of things that. Uh, I would say here, if they had taken Vienna, I, I, I feel fairly certain that the Habsburgs would have been uh, depleted as a, a, a political power in Europe. Um, but the Ottomans at the same time were uh, there. There are other indications that have uh, things that happen in the 16th century that suggest that they're really approaching the end of their rope logistically. Um, the, the siege of Malta in 16 or in 1565, Lepanto 1571, uh, they're kind of uh, the way they expand across North Africa, which again isn't directly. It's more kind of like accepting uh, the 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 vassaldom of some of these places. It seems like they're they're toward the end of a like how far can we really push this? Uh, so and and there's a question then also in terms of what Suleiman actually wanted out of Vienna and. Historians aren't really sure about this. Uh, there's some argument that he, in 1529 at least, he wasn't looking even to take the city. He was looking to weaken it, and then they would come back later with another army. And they, they this was a tactic that the Ottomans followed uh, sometimes when they were attacking a major city. They they do it in in a couple of different waves. Um, it's also possible that he viewed Vienna more as a border city, as a protection for Hungary, which the Ottomans had just taken uh, after the Battle of Mohac, uh, or Mohats. Uh, and, you know, possibly he viewed Vienna as kind of the, the end point on the line and the thing that would uh, allow him to protect what the other places that, that he'd taken. It's also possible that he viewed Vienna as basically a new regional capital and like a stepping stone into Central Europe, and this was going to be the base for new conquests. But if that's the case... Then the question becomes: How quickly can they reinforce the city? How quickly can they get, uh, get sort of build up and consolidate that gain in the face of what I think would be a much different Europe? Like, does the Reformation really happen the way that it happens? That's what I'm in this wondering. world. That's, the, that's what I was just thinking as well. Uh, do, does you know do every we, you know does everybody kind of put the main, their this the aside series now. that like right before the Reformation happened, there was an, an attempt to get a crusade together against. The Ottomans, and given such a you know an inciting incident to be like, hey, this isn't just you know yeah. something we'd like to do. See, this like is an emergency of everyone's yeah. focus towards the real threat of the Ottomans, and then nobody has time to dick around talking about indulgences. Right, right. No, but who cares about you know the Eucharist? We have bigger fish. To like we have more important <laughs> things to do. Um, so that's that's why I I kind of think that the advantage would be f- toward the Europeans in that situation because again I feel like the Ottomans were at the point where it would have taken a decade or two to really kind of firm up their control of this region before they could even think about kind of continuing on to to other parts of Central Europe or Italy or wherever they were planning to go. But at the same time, and then, you know, if you look at it from the European perspective, if they were able to say, 
you know, none of this stuff matters. We're we're under threat. And even the French who were, uh, you know, as you as you guys have talked about, in alliance with the Ottomans, I'm not even sure the French would have been particularly thrilled about this development. <laughs> so, um, you know, at that point, if the Europeans could get themselves together and and launch a counterattack, uh, I think the Ottomans would have been vulnerable. Uh, so I, I would say the advantage there would probably be more toward the Europeans, but uh, it would be a race basically who could, who could get their shit together first. I think, I think you, you get a more consolidated uh, European polity there in response, probably delaying the reformation significantly. But uh, yeah, if, if the Ottomans are at their end of their logistical rope, as I agree with you, they would have been then it's only a matter of time before they go back to fighting one another and uh, the tensions and contradictions emerge and you get all the same things we've been talking about just far in a farther time horizon. But if that, you know, then who knows how that changes everything? Yeah. And who knows? I mean, who knows what it does to the, to the Ottomans if they suffer a defeat there uh, at Vienna and are driven back, um, you know, maybe things start to go, go South for them uh, in a bigger way. It could, it could become like a domino uh, effect. I know we're running long, but Matt, do you want to ask this uh, question about uh, Muslim Europe? The the thing that I know is you're very curious about, about Bosnians. Oh, yeah. How come? Okay. I mean, <laughs> you got you got the Balkans, which is the, the liminal space that is between Ottoman Europe and and uh, and Christian Europe, the Muslims. And you've got this uh, hodgepodge. You've got the Orthodox Serbs. You've got the Catholic uh, Croats. And then you have... The Bosnians who are Muslim. Why are why of all these people who are under Ottoman domination for all these centuries? How come only the Bosnians became Muslim? So I, I don't think anybody's come up with the one good answer for this. And it, I mean, there are other populations. The Albanians became yes, you know, they also became Albanian. Yeah. Um, there's a, a fairly significant Macedonian uh, minority, Bulgarian minority, also. Uh, but but the Bosniaks are the the best kind of uh, example of this, and I would say uh, to your point about liminal spaces, Bosnia, the the highlands of Bosnia was the liminal space between Catholicism and Orthodox Christianity for before the Ottomans showed up, and so the best explanation I've seen for this is that because it was on the frontier between the two dominant Christian you know Christian churches. Uh, and was fairly remote, fairly inaccessible. Uh, it it never developed in one of these traditions. There was a Bosnian church, but it was fairly autonomous. It was associated with Bogomilism, which is a, a Gnostic heresy. Uh, I don't think that's I don't think that's historically correct. Bogomilism did gain a foothold in this region, but I don't think the Bosnian Christian church was Bogomilist. Uh, it, it got tagged with that, but I, I, I think they were separate things. Um, but the, the cultural salience of Christianity was not as deep in this region, I think, uh, as it was for say the Croats uh, and their ties to Rome or the, the Serbs and their ties to, to the Orthodox church. And so when the Ottomans come in, there's a couple of things that happen. One, the Bosnians, I think, were regarded as pretty good fighters. There's this sort of like Highlander mountain people thing, which you can see in uh, Switzerland and Afghanistan, you know, all over the, the place. These guys are regarded as uh, good fighters. There's something about, I don't know, high altitude or something. I don't know what it is. Um, so, But they regarded the Bosniaks as, or the, these people who, you know, we would, the ancestors of the Bosniaks, let's say, as as capable fighters. And so they were very popular in the Devshirme and the recruitment 
uh, the slave recruitment into the the service, which involved conversion. And so that conversion kind of caught on in this community uh, in a way that it it didn't necessarily at the same level with with other Christian or with other uh, Baltic or Balkan. I keep saying Baltic Balkan communities. Um, and the other factor I would say is like on some, on some level you could flip the question. It's not why did the Bosniaks convert? It's why didn't anybody else convert? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of advantages to converting. You're, you're, you don't have to pay the same, uh, taxes. You don't have to pay the jizya, which is, uh, you know, could be fairly punitive. Uh, you're not forced to see your son's taken away every year and sent off. Maybe, you know, maybe it was, it could be a form of social mobility. Maybe your son would wind up one day as the grand vizier of the Ottoman empire, but maybe he would wind up being, you know, blown to smithereens by a, a field gun, you know, in, in, uh, Hungary or something like, it, you know, it wasn't necessarily a good deal to have your kids, uh, taken away. So, uh, I think the combination of there not being, uh, the same cultural pull, to the Christian churches and the advantages of conversion and the fact that uh, the Ottomans really like seem to like these guys as fighters and recruited them heavily all kind of combined to, to explain why this population converted in, in large numbers and others didn't. It's always mountains, baby. (laughs) The crannies, Albania also incredibly mountainous. Yes. Albania's and although in Albania, there's, there's some coercion, like there's a whole, you know, the Ottomans did not for most of their history, try to coercively force anybody to convert. Why would you, that was economically more beneficial to rule non-Muslim populations and and, uh, tax them more heavily. Um, And because of the slave system, you couldn't enslave Muslims. Now you could enslave Christians and then force them to convert to Islam. Once they were enslaved, that doesn't get you freed. Uh, but you can't. You're not supposed to enslave people who are freeborn Muslims, uh, so it would have, you know, eliminated another source of manpower. But by the, let's say, 19th century, when you start to see successive Albanian re- revolts, uh, nationalist revolts against, uh, like 19th and then into the early 20th century against the Ottomans, they really start to to view Albanian Christians as a national security problem, and and it's there's some coercive measures are brought to bear that uh, may explain some of the the conversion of that population. Awesome. Well, obviously the Ottomans persist, as you said at the very beginning, until uh, you know the early 20th century. So there is much more history that we could go through, but I feel like this really covers the era that we are looking at, and and gives you know color to the giant and influential. Um, polity that we've only mentioned in passing so i I think we'll leave it there for today um derek uh tell the people where they can find you (laughs) uh well uh foreign exchanges uh, is my newsletter where i i unfortunately don't get to talk about this stuff nearly enough i I enjoy it so much uh but i talk about you adopt like the uh the the modern uh, the more uh you know conservative commentator tact where you, you start talking about, <laughs> yeah, I can talk about the it. essential Ottomanness of, of Erdogan or, uh, or something, you know? <laughs> uh, but folks can check it, check that out. Uh, fx.substack.com. Uh, and then of course uh, the podcast, American prestige, uh, American prestige pod.com. That's me and uh, Daniel Bessner. Uh, and uh, we do get into some history there. We have, we try to have uh, as many uh, starving adjunct, faculty on as we can because really that's i feel like it's a a service to them but uh you know it's it's uh it's good i i think we do a a a good show for people who are interested in understanding uh the way the world works and and why the united states is 
such a colossal prick all the time. <laughs> uh, I think it's it's uh, helpful. Uh, great. Well, we will put those links in the description. And uh, I think that's it for this week. Join us next week for, I believe, the last of our appendices, our bonus episodes that I believe will be me and Matt doing a kind of wrap up of what we've learned episode and taking some listener questions to bring us all home. So thank you for listening to Hell on Earth. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for having me, guys.